This is Sit Rap on BFBS. It's a week of success in military and diplomatic efforts. After 13 years, Iran has come in from the nuclear cold. The RAF is getting a boost to its airborne intelligence gathering systems. The Prime Minister has promised extra money for special forces. And state-of-the-art weapons are on the way. But will we have the people to operate them? Hello, I'm Paula Middlehurst. So, the RAF is to step up its intelligence gathering over Iraq and Syria. The Defence Secretary has announced the deployment of a second river joint spy plane to the region in the fight against Islamic State. Michael Fallon making that announcement in his address to the Royal United Services Institute's Air Power Conference, and that coming just days after the Prime Minister ordered more spending on drones and special forces in order to combat the threat from Islamist extremism. Well, I'm joining the studio by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, we were told then about this uh, 2% of GDP. At last, we're going to meet that. Now the Prime Minister's telling the Defence Secretary what to spend the money on. Is that what we'd expect? Yeah, put it in context. We have been spending the 2%. What he's saying publicly is that we will continue to spend 2% of our gross domestic product. That's the first part. The second part is that when he says, and this is what you'll do with some of the money, you'll use it for the insertion of special forces into areas like perhaps Syria, perhaps Iraq, perhaps Libya, etc. What it does in some ways, it, it brings an understanding that you can link to this announcement about new aircraft surveillance, for example. You have the big picture, which is you know the Air Force, the new carriers for the Navy, etc., and you bring it right down to maybe a six-man platoon in the special forces. And what you're getting from the prime minister, the first time I've heard a prime minister say this, in, in many ways since the Falklands War, perhaps, an understanding of the complexity of the overall operation and that's what you're getting for the 2%. But what about the language that's being used? We heard my, uh, Michael Fallon describing this as the fight against IS and it's the new battle of Britain. I mean, is that an odd choice of language or what did you make of it? Well, if I was a headline writer, I quite like it because it fits in 36-point Padoni over five columns or, or something <laughs> crazy like that. Now, what this is, if you, if you think about Battle of Britain, for example, which uh, began, um, you know, 1940 last week, um, Battle of Britain was the sort of the, the thing that stopped Britain if you like, stopped a, a, a larger German invasion of, of the United Kingdom. Therefore, it was crucial. It was a crucial stage in that particular war. What we're at at the moment is a crucial stage in Britain's contribution, let's say, to NATO, to the Anglo-American coalition of, of the willing, etc. It is particularly important. And so when you come and start thinking to yourself, OK, we're going to put more aircraft surveillance into the valley then you start thinking to yourself, perhaps we are recovering from where we were, say, 10 years ago, and we're getting back to it. And this is more selective, and that's why I think that the Autumn Strategic Defence Initiative will probably 
uh, be a little more sophisticated than the last one, which was really about uh, 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 money. And in terms of that surveillance, uh, Michael Fallon saying Britain's providing 30% of the aerial intelligence, he says, over Iraq and Syria. Uh, we know that air intelligence is a joint function. Of what and for whom does he mean that about? OK, well, I'm not sure about this 30%. I mean, what we're actually doing, we're getting 100% from our surveillance system at the moment. Um, but you, you distribute your your uh, your your aerial uh, surveillance, in particular intelligence gathering, uh, and don't forget this is not just the United Kingdom against Syrian rebels or Iraqis or or IS or whatever Daesh or whatever we're going to call them. What you have to remember is this: you you've got a, a pilot sitting on the runway, let's say at Cyprus, and he's going off to hit a target in in say let us say in the future in Syria or in Iraq. With him is the most complex intelligence-gathering system, electronic intelligence-gathering system that we've ever seen. It starts off with, for example, airborne, looking down what's there, what's likely to attack you. The second range will be air, uh, uh, radar suppression, for example. So they say they've got radars which could lock onto you or, or whatever, and they could perhaps take you out. What you have is a, is a system which will, which, will, which will lock onto those air, uh, uh, radars and stop that happening. You then have an area surveillance which goes into other countries and it can all be controlled from the air. It's all airborne. And it's airborne and it goes into an airborne system. So the pilot, when he takes off, he doesn't have to rely on his tom-tom. He's, he's got this uh, fantastic three, four-nation system which is all going into different command stations and you can adjust your flight and adjust what you do. And maybe the crucial point is not when you hit the target, when you may have to abort the, abort the mission, you can bring it back. So how does rivet joint fit into that? It is, it is more complex. Um, it can go up, it can gather what's going on. In other words, it does its intelligence gathering. And then it can disseminate it. And it can actually send back a dissemination of exactly what it's seeing. It can do the analysis while it's still in the air. Absolute sort of uh, a, a vital stuff to have. Chris Lee for the moment. Thanks very much indeed. So then, as the three services are busy fighting for the best deal from the new SDSR, does this give the RAF the edge over the other two services? The BFBS reporter James Hurst has spoken to the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal, Sir Andrew Pulford. Well, I don't think it's uh, any secret that the, uh, the fast jet force is stretched. Um, primarily, we are a force of two types, the Typhoon, which is looking after quick reaction alert, both in the UK, the Falklands, and of course we've got a squadron supporting NATO Baltic air policing uh, out in the Baltic region. Uh, but on the Tornado Force, and it's the Tornado GR4 that is primarily engaged in operations over Iraq at the moment, uh, from a combat air sense, uh, because of the nature of the weapons on, uh, that are available on that aircraft. Uh, and, of course, it's, uh, it's only six months or so ago that the government decided that rather than uh, disbanding one of those squadrons in the last spring as intended, that they would keep that for, for another year. So that is because that particular force uh, is effectively fully engaged in supporting those operations. So it's, uh, it's my expectation that uh, we will make a case to keep that squadron beyond the April of next year. Is the stretch in terms of hardware or what's being lost of people, or is it both? Well, interestingly, it's the people. As always, it's the people that are our most precious asset. Uh, and if, uh, if you realise that the Tornado GR4 is actually an aircraft that's slowly going out of service, its final out-of-service date is 2019, uh, we're actually in a situation we've got more aircraft available to us than we've got 
crews to fly them and uh, engineers to maintain them. So the real issue here is the engineers and the pilots and the uh, weapon systems operators. We know the government is considering whether to ask Parliament for authorization to extend airstrikes beyond Iraq and into Syria. If the RAF was asked to extend that, would it actually have any more to offer, given the, the, the stretch that you've spoken about? No, of course, that is a, a political decision to, to broaden the area of operations. Um, and in that case, that, that would simply be a change of the geographical scope of the operation. And I have nothing, uh, as it were, more to add uh, in terms of aircraft for the reasons we've discussed. There are, there are no more to put into a fight. The future of fast jets is going from tornado and typhoon to typhoon and joint strike fighter. Uh, when will joint strike fighter actually be in service? What, what, what progress are we making to getting a joint strike fighter fleet? Well, let, let me stress that, that Lightning, as we're calling it, uh, Lightning 2 for most, but I, I think Lightning will just do the Joint Strike Fighter. Um, it's a program that's here and now. It's, it's with us. It just doesn't happen to be in the UK because of all our operational test work and test and evaluation is being done in the United States with both the United States Air Force and the US Marine Corps. Um, and indeed, next year, number 617 Squadron, the, the dam busters of of World War II fame, that will be the first uh, Lightning Squadron, and that will form as a joint Royal Air Force Royal Navy Squadron uh, with the U.S. Marine Corps uh, at a U.S. Marine Corps base called Buford. They will then work up, they will train their crews, and they will come back to RAF Marham in 2018 as a, a, an operational squadron. So not a, not a program coming, a program here um, and on track uh, to, to deliver on time. As we head into the delivery of the next Strategic Defence and Security Review, for, for you, what are the, the priorities for air power in, in this review? Well, the first thing has got to be people. Um, our people have, uh, have worked hard. They've delivered success in operations in Afghanistan. They're now working extremely hard supporting operations over Iraq and Syria. So we've got to ensure the offer, uh, the balanced lifestyle between the reward they're getting, the amount of time they're spending away, uh, the, the money, the pension, uh, and the job satisfaction is all in balance such that they wish to stay and, uh, and remain in the Royal Air Force. Uh, the second priority, I think, is combat air mass, ensuring that we've got the right number and the right capabilities on our fast jet aircraft uh, now and into the future. And finally, it's ensuring that that I-star balance, that that mix of fleets uh, now is funded appropriately into the short term, and then we're looking to procure and develop the right aircraft for the uh, for the next decade. Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshals Andrew Pulford, talking to James Hurst there. Well, Christopher Lee, it does seem listening to that air power is more important than ever. Does that mean the RAF's going to get a bigger slice of the pie then from the Treasury? No, it doesn't. Um, we, we've got put this in somewhat former perspective. When you hear um, Andrew Pulford, because they're talking about for example, um, oh, we may be going to hit other targets in Syria, but he hasn't got other assets to do so. So you have to pull something off somewhere and say, right, now we, 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 we turn left and, we, and, that, and that's what we're going to do. The other side of it, he says, well, one of the most important things we're going to go for is not so much equipment. We've now got to go spend far more time thinking about the sort of people we have in. And you can get, you can imagine that you've got this huge advances in technology, but you haven't got 
necessarily people to drive it, people to maintain it. I think the most important thing is for the RAF itself. In 2018, it celebrates 100 years of its existence. Um, and the RAF is very conscious that when it, it needs public backing sometimes to get something moving, that the politicians will say, OK, we understand this a bit more. But when you think about it, the RAF, all it can do is show a couple of aeroplanes and the red arrows. And there isn't, there isn't an Afghanistan picture or whatever to get public support from. Chris, for the moment, thank you. Well, as the Chief of the Air Staff mentioned there, an RAF Typhoon Squadron is currently deployed to NATO's Baltic Air Policing Mission. BFBS reporter Laura Hawkins has been to see what they're doing and she sent this report from Estonia. From RAF Lossy Mouth to Amari Air Base in Estonia. Four Typhoon aircraft, four pilots and over 120 personnel, including engineers and support staff, are here for the RAF's first deployment to the Baltic state. It's part of NATO's Baltic Air Policing Mission, working to secure NATO's airspace over Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania, which do not have their own air defence fighters. If there's an unidentifiable aircraft, the RAF jets will scramble. Here's the commanding officer of 121 Expeditionary Air Wing, Wing Commander Stu Smiley. A scramble that uh, has flown out of here will be in response to a, uh, an aircraft that's not following the rules of the air. He's not communicating with air traffic. He's not using the correct navigation equipment. And when we see that, uh, we get launched uh, by NATO headquarters to go and intercept to, to find out what that aircraft is. Although it's been a quiet couple of weeks, since May, the RAF jets have made up to 20 scrambles. Flight Lieutenant Paul Griffin is the aerospace battle manager. Out here, it's, it's purely identification, so they will go up and they will get these markings, and it's, it's very civilised and gentlemanly um, for what our guys are doing. Um, they'll usually be, uh, if we're intercepting Russian aircraft, they may waggle their wings, you know, um, some waving takes place, uh, especially with some of the bigger aircraft, they will, they will take, as we take photos of them, they will take photos of us as well, so it's all very relaxed and things like that. Uh, and that's as far as we got on this, on, on a flow chart of what to do about this aircraft, because at the end of the day, they're in, they're in um, international. All the intercepts we've done, the aircraft are in international waters, so they are fully within rights to be there, and we are fully within our rights to be there with them as well. For the Estonian Air Force, Major Ifar Wark says the RAF are a welcome addition to their military base. Actually, really important because uh, our nation sees that uh, we are not alone, and the NATO is supporting when needed. And, uh, I think everybody is pleased. Importantly, these deployments are proving to Russia that NATO is taking seriously its pledge of supporting member nations when it's needed. Laura Hawkins reporting there from Estonia. Still to come, a deal over Iran's nuclear ambitions, but will Obama get it through Congress? And why Britain's surveillance laws are out of date. BFDS SIPREP. So is the United States government now telling the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon what to put in the SDSR, the Strategic Defence and Security Review? That's how it sounded when Mr Fallon was speaking this week about naval ties between the two nations. Our first Strategic Defence and Security Review five years ago put us, I think, in the right place. It recognised the need to build on the Royal Navy's traditional flexibility in adjusting to this new area of new era of contingency. Our second review now underway with direct American defense involvement in the process has, has now begun. 
Well, I'm joined now by Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah. Uh, Michael Stathis, the Chief of Naval Operations in the United States Navy, Admiral Jonathan W. Green, it was listening to that speech. Is there anything more than the UK knowing where it fits in the largely Anglo-American cooperation of the willing? Well, uh, last night when I was thinking, listening to parts of this conference, I was reminded of the so-called return of the Mayflower in May of 1917 when the first American destroyers arrived uh, to aid the United Kingdom in the Great War. Um, I think there's a general agreement that today as then we share a common global responsibility as well as common values and common interests uh, in a very dangerous world. As uh, Secretary of Defense Michael Fallon uh, put it ably yesterday, we are acting in partnership. President Obama actually re, uh, made reference to this, re-emphasizing that uh, the United Kingdom and the United States are primary partners, indispensable to, uh, uh, to, to, to one another. Uh, this is a, a very important ongoing thing, uh, and it, uh, well, if, if I can be a little maudlin here, having been on this program for 14 years, uh, uh, speaking from the southwest uh, United States, uh, over those years we have often spoken on this program of the special relationship and its current state. And with this conference, it seems that at least in terms of naval cooperation, that that relationship will remain strong as it should, my dear friends. <laughs> Michael Stathis, uh, Christopher Lee, is with me here in the studio and uh, gave a wry smile as you gave your first comment. Christopher, why was that? I didn't believe Michael had been on the programme for 14 years, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> he's, far, <laughs> he's far too young. Um, listen, listen first, here's a thought. Um, what, in fact, he was saying, that's the uh, Defence Secretary here, was di America's direct involvement. Uh, that's not the chief... Uh, the chairman of the uh, of the chiefs ringing up the defence ministry here and says, "What you got to do? If you think about it, the United Kingdom is about about to put into service and operation a new aircraft carrier. Uh, it's pointless doing so unless it puts planes on the decks. Where do the planes come from? America. This is the first time this has ever happened, and I think it's that sort of cooperation, the realization that there are other parts of the world that we can actually work rather well with, and we can trust. And at the end of the day, you have to work with people you trust." Michael, if I can just ask you one last thing. There's also been a briefing here this week from another U.S. admiral who's commander of U.S. Cyber Command. He's had lots to say about uh, the attacks on computer networks of financial institutions. Why are, though, so many U.S. top brass in the U.K. right now? Uh, you know, this whole uh, concept of uh, cyber protection uh, is uh, it's, it's a new ballgame uh, in, uh, in national security. And uh, it's, it's one of those areas that I, I don't think has been thought through uh, as thoroughly as it needs be. And um, it, uh, you know, it indicates uh, that there are a whole wave of new challenges out there uh, uh, worldwide, but uh, particularly uh, facing the United States. Michael Stathis, stay with us. I want to ask you next about Iran. Of course, there's been that landmark deal to limit Iran's nuclear activities made early this week after marathon talks with world powers in Vienna. The deal should lead to the lifting of tough economic sanctions, but that agreement, of course, has been strongly criticised by President Obama's Republican rivals in the States. Congress has 60 days to approve that deal, and it could yet be torpedoed. Uh, what is your... Uh, assessment of what's happened. Do you think President Obama will be successful getting this through Congress? 
Yes. Now, by the way, to Chris, uh, I actually turned 66 in two weeks. Uh, but more seriously. on its way. Uh, <laughs> come, come, you two. Come, come. Um, first of all, it has to be understood, and, uh, well, uh, President Obama's uh, uh, opponents on this, as well as the press, sometimes forget the, fa- the simple fact. This is an agreement. Effectively, it is an executive agreement, which by law does not need ratification by the Senate. Um, now, uh, President Obama would like to have uh, a Congress uh, pass a bill supporting this, but the simple fact of the matter is Congress can ignore it, it can debate it, or it can support it, but it really can do very little to stop it. Um, and uh, given the importance of this deal uh, globally, not just for the United States, uh, it, it's important that it succeed. Some Arab commentators have already been saying that it's no wonder he's pushed this deal through. He is the son, the son of a Sunni Kenyan farmer. Uh, but uh, is, the, is the bigger picture that Iran could become America's biggest ally in the Middle East? Is that a realistic expectation? Well, uh, the Persian Gulf and Iran have long been uh, kind of the center of my uh, uh, professional studies. And it has grieved me over the years that there has uh, uh, been such a nasty relationship between Iran and, uh, and, the, America, and the United States. Um, I am hoping that this is the beginning of uh, perhaps uh, maybe not normalization uh, of uh, relations between these two countries, but the beginning of workable relations. Um, and I have great hope uh, <clears throat> for the future. Uh, and uh, I, I hope that uh, you know that hope is not uh, overly optimistic. But this is this is a vital agreement. Um, uh, whether it will lead to further stability in the Middle East, we're not exactly sure. Whether or not Israel but, agrees with it, as well, of course. Well, and uh, here uh, some Americans are getting a little tired of uh, uh, you know constantly hearing of. Israel's interests uh, concerning this deal. Um, we are more primarily concerned with um, the broader picture, um, uh, the interests of our allies in Europe, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, and other countries in the Middle East. And as Obama has said time and time again, this is the best, maybe the only deal at this time, uh, that can be made uh, to promote those interests. And he also said, didn't he, Christopher Lee, that uh, you either jaw-jaw or you war-war. I mean, I don't think he used Churchill's quote, but he did say, we either talk and do this through diplomatic means or we do it through force, and that is war. Yes, I mean, I mean, I very rarely drag up Voltaire, but this is the best of all possible worlds that we have at the moment. Uh, it's interesting also that Philip Hammond, the British Foreign Secretary, and Ash Carter, the, uh, the American Defence Secretary, are going to see... Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu. And one of the com- uh, consequences of this will be an offer which will be accepted to update the Israeli Air Force and other weapon systems. Now, Netanyahu saw this coming, and he knows also he's not going to be bought off, because he can't the, be bought off nationally. There's the hidden agenda. But it's, all, it's a hidden agenda, but it's also true that there are people in opposition to Netanyahu in, in, in the Knesset who are coming over to his side. It's a long, long story, this, and I think that most important part of it is not necessarily the nuclear agreement, is the fact that uh, Iran is back in from the cold. And when you think 
who is fighting IS more than we are? Iran. Chris, thank you for the moment. Now, a group of Britain's former intelligence chiefs say the UK needs safer and foolproof surveillance laws. A report delivered at the Royal United Service Institute says the current legal position is antiquated and unclear. Well, Sir David Ammond, former director of GCHQ, is one of the report's authors and joins us now. Thanks for joining us. Uh, the Good present, to be with you. The present law supposed to stop, then, excessive surveillance in the UK... But you're saying you may have even broken the law in trying to find the information to stop terrorism, is that right? Not quite. The, uh, uh, the present law works after a fashion um, in that it allows the intelligence agencies and the police to use the powers that they must have to keep us safe. But it's law that is really very difficult to understand if you're not deeply steeped in it. And, of course, the technology keeps moving on. So we concluded in our independent review, and we had on this panel uh, three former chiefs of the uh, British intelligence agencies, um, we concluded that the time had come for a fresh start and that Parliament should legislate you know, for the 21st century and it should be legislation that could be understood by the public. But we also were very clear that these important uh, uh, powers, the, the digital intelligence that uh, uncovers tre te uh, terrorist plots, that supports our armed forces when they're on operations, that helps deal with some of the most serious crimes, such as paedophilia, that these powers are very necessary. But the public's got a right, I think, to be reassured they can't be abused by any future government to snoop on the public. And the public has a right to know who's going to monitor to make sure the intelligence services are working within any new law. How will that be set up? Well, at the moment, we have parliamentarians, we've got a special committee of parliament, we've got very senior judges who have the right to go into the agencies and examine the authorizations and the way they've been uh, carried, carried out. We've recommended a tightening up of the uh, processes. We think that there should be greater judicial involvement because people do trust the independence of the British judiciary. Uh, we think that the uh, uh, when it comes to the work of the agencies, those things that are not obviously have to be secret, such as sources and methods, should be explained to the public because we should be proud of our intelligence agencies. They do a fabulous job. They've done a wonderful job over the last 10 years in supporting our armed forces. They need these tools. But the more powerful the tools are, the more, I think, as citizens, we ought to just reassure ourselves that they can't be misused. But if the technology is continually changing, how do we keep our law open-ended in that respect for amendments? It's, it's a difficult uh, task. When we passed the legislation in 2000, and that was 15 years ago, uh, which I was involved in, we tried to make it technology neutral. The Internet existed at that point, Hotmail existed, but the idea of all these apps and of uh, uh, services like Snapchat and WhatsApp, they, they hadn't been invented. Well, we're now living in a world in which the Internet is just part and parcel of our everyday lives, so the legislation's got to be able to cope with that. One of the most important uh, uh, 
tools that the police have, for example, for investigating ordinary crime is uh, communication data. Uh, when a child goes missing, the first thing is to check on the mobile device, the phone or the tablet. Uh, who, when was it last heard from? Where, where was it uh, when the child disappeared? Now, that's the kind of information which I think the, the police service really has a right to expect to be able to get from the companies. And when it comes to you know, more seri uh, serious intelligence activity, looking, for example, at terrorist groups, again, uh, who is co in contact with whom is information that really is needed uh, if we're going to keep ourselves safe. Sir David Almond, thank you. Now, Chris, a quick word about drone pilots, bonuses on offer to anyone who can save up, uh, sign up rather, for five years to be one. Uh, is this a real problem? Uh, it is a problem, otherwise the solar wouldn't be doing it. Well, well, I find fascinating about this. It is a big problem. It is a huge problem throughout the world in the most simplest thing. Earlier in the programme, we heard Chief of the Air Staff saying that people were his number one problem, getting the right people, that he's got more aircraft, for example, than he has people to fly them and also to maintain them. We've got new aircraft carriers, we've got new Type 45s, we've got new Type 20, 26s eventually in, in the Navy. We've got a new structure of the Army. What is interesting, all this brilliant technology, we're going to be a ghost ship, a ghost aircraft and a ghost battalion because we haven't got the people to put in. Christopher Lee, thank you. That's all we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Professor Michael Stathis, Sir David Ummond, and of course our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Do keep your comments coming to us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And join us again next week for more analysis. For now, from me, Paula Middlehurst, it's goodbye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.